This is the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings, who you can add on Snapchat at hstebbings with two b's. And the show is brought to you by the one and only Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on Twitter. And if you do follow me on Snapchat, you'll have seen many mojito-filled Snapchat stories. And I'd love to have you join me for mojitos at Sasta Annual 2017 in less than a month's time. I'm very excited to say. So simply enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. Those three words, Drinks with Harry, when you're purchasing your Sasta tickets. And not only will you get 20% off the ticket price, but you'll also get a fantastic mojito happy hour with me paid for by the kind bank of mr jason lemkin still amazed he agreed to that but it would be so great to see you there however back to the show today and today's guest has actually been on the show before but we had such a great chat last time and i wanted to deep dive with him on so much more that i really wanted to have him back so rejoining me today i'm thrilled to welcome a leader of the sales industry we often have vps of sales or titans of tech companies on the show but who teaches them sales who trains the likes of salesforce to be the best well that's the space of john barrows he won't admit to this but essentially he's the godfather of sales with clients including Salesforce, Dropbox, Twilio, LinkedIn, Box, Marketo. The list goes on of tech titans and you must check out his blog on jbarrows.com. Absolutely fantastic writings on all things sales. And before we welcome John back to the show today, if you attend Sasta Annual, you'll also get to meet and see the incredible Algolia product and team at the event. Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning fast typo tolerance search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at Algolia com forward slash podcast. But enough from me, so I'm now delighted to hand over to the godfather of sales, John Barrows. You have now arrived at your destination. John, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show for a second time. Obviously, I so enjoyed having you on first. I couldn't help but ask you back. So thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me back here. I appreciate it. it was, first time was a good one. Let's, let's make this one just as good, if not better. Absolutely, it will be better. But I want to start off for those that maybe live under a rock and ask, how did you make your way into the world of, of early stage SaaS and become the trainer for some of the world's best SaaS organizations? Yeah, I mean, I'll make this one brief because I know for those of you who listened to this before, but... Uh, um, yeah, I just like everybody else, man, I got into sales, just stumbled into it. I got my degree in marketing, started selling quote unquote power tools for DeWalt here in the States, which was fantastic. And then got into Xerox, which I got my real sales education, uh, learned how to sell a commodity and, and take rejection for a living. And then uh, started a company with a few buddies of mine doing outsourced IT services, no funding, any of that. We were pure self-funded. So I had nothing but my effort to drive revenues. I was running sales. So I went out there and did pretty much everything I could to find sales. Sales, grew that company up, took a lot of sales trainings along the way and grew that company up, ended up selling it off to Staples after about seven years and then joined the, one of the sales training companies that I had taken, this company called Basho. And just because I really liked the training and really wanted to get into the whole consulting world, did that for a little while. They screwed it all up and I took it over. And uh, long story short, for the past eight years now, I've been training about four years. I've been on my own with Jay Barrows, but about eight years I've been training this stuff and also selling. So I'm not 
not, you know, people say, are you a trainer? I'm not really a trainer. I'm, I'm a sales guy that came across some really good stuff and I just happen to be all right, you know, sharing it with people. So, but I'd sell every day. I use these techniques to sell every day, which I think is what resonates with the audience because this industry, unfortunately, is a route with sales trainers who have been there, done that 20 years ago, selling back in my day type of stuff or people who are really, really new in sales and really don't have a lot of context or stories to put around the content. So I think that's what's working these days and having a blast doing it. You said there about getting a real sales education. I'm super intrigued. And this is a meta question, not in the schedule, uh, as always yeah. for me. But do you think that the current educational infrastructure really allows for a sales education? You know, I see lots of friends come out with history and history of art degrees <laughs> and geography degrees um, or coloring in degrees, as I like to call them. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's no sales, but a lot go into sales. Is this properly equipping the next generation to be sales leaders? No, absolutely not. I, I actually think our education system is broke on so many levels. I don't think our education systems educating people for the new wave of jobs right now. Forget about sales. So I think something fundamentally needs to change. But, you know, as it relates to sales, no. I think college is a the four-year university degree, the way I look at it, I look at it as a social education, not an actual education, which is great for sales. So if you go into it with a mindset of learning how to connect with people, learning how to, make, you know, develop and build relationships from a social standpoint, then yeah, I think college does a decent job at that. But as it comes to the fundamentals of sales skills and sales techniques and in, in the process, then no, absolutely not. I don't think it's it's well equipped at all because I think it's playing so much catch up. It's trying to play catch up on an industry that is the leading industry in the world. I mean, sales is the number one profession on the planet. But the fact that and the fact that we are the least educated in our field is somewhat insulting and embarrassing in a lot of ways. Well, as a university dropout, I'm naturally thrilled to hear you <laughs> say that. But I do I do want to return to, to normality. And with it being New Year, a lot of people that I speak to uh, are setting OKRs and discussing with their bosses and clients goals and objectives. So with that in mind, I want to talk about expectation setting. And, and in particular, how expectation setting and accountability maybe merge with your thoughts on communication and responsiveness throughout the sales process. Yeah, I think expectation setting, I've done a lot of thinking on this. I think expectation setting is the key to life in general, for crying out loud. I mean, if you think about the last time you were pissed off about anything, uh, I'm al- I almost guarantee it's because your expectations were misset. Here's the traffic example where if you drive into the office at eight o'clock in the morning, you expect traffic, you don't like it, but you expect it, it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm leaving today for a trip for the rest of the week and I get home off of a red eye and I come home at four o'clock in the morning on Friday morning. And I, you know, I live about 10 minutes north of the city. And if I hit traffic at four o'clock in the morning on a Friday morning, I'm rip roaring pissed off because I wasn't expecting traffic. Right. And I think that's, if you think about the clients, why do we get pissed off at clients? Well, because we expected them to respond to us. You know, we expected them to stay committed to what they had told us in the first place about their timeline and their priorities. Why do clients get upset with us? Well, because they expected something different than what we told them. So talk to any customer service manager or client success manager and huge part of their business and their responsibility is almost resetting expectations, unfortunately, based on what the sales rep probably misset. You know, the sales rep misset expectations about what the product or service can do just to get the sale. And now customer service is is holding the bag and trying to mop up from that. So I think it's absolutely critical to set accurate expectations up front, whether it's with internal or external clients, and then document them and then stay committed to them all the way throughout and and just be open about it. Because otherwise, people tend to get pissed off pretty fast. 
pass when expectations are misset. Is there a way to align the kind of customer experience and customer success officers and the sales team so that the sales team maybe don't missell or oversell potential features, which then the customer success or experience teams have to then reiterate or change? Short answer is yes. And I think a documented process of what needs to be uh, set with the client, uh, what criteria needs to be there, kind of a documented handoff, a formal handoff process to the customer success team, I think is critical. But a lot of companies don't have that. I don't think it's really that hard to put together. One of the things I recommend, which is a nice, easy way and a very tactical thing that people can do is I call it the summary email. It's actually one of my favorite tips that I give and and techniques that I give my training. And I do it with all my clients, internal or external, by the way, with vendors, anybody. It's the summary email. And the way it works is, you know, you have a great conversation with a client and at the end of it, there's some next steps, hopefully it's some next steps and action items. But before that, you say to the client, hey, thanks so much for your time today. There's some next steps and action items here. Before I go ahead and do all that, though, what I'm going to do when I either get back to the office or get off the phone here is I'm just going to summarize what I was able to gain from this conversation. And I'm going to send it over to you in a quick email. Could you do me a favor and email me back to let me know if it's all accurate and if I missed anything? So by the way, you have to let the the client know this is coming because if you don't let them know it's coming, the response rates drop pretty drastically. But if you do let them know it's coming, then what you do is you don't write a book here. This isn't a, you know, and this isn't a chance for you to reiterate your value proposition, how great you are. This is purely to confirm what you heard from them. So for instance, you know, your current situation's this, you know, your timeline's this, your priorities are this, here's the competition, here's the next steps, whatever, you know, probably six, seven, eight bullet points. And with the key in those two, in my opinion, being priorities and timeline. And then you send it over to, in a really simple email, not a full blown document or anything like that, simple email, and then ask for them to respond back. And then when they do, now you have something to hold them professionally accountable for what they're telling you. So you now have it documented. And then if think about this going from a BDR to, you know, SDR, BDR, you know, setting up the meeting. So they have a qualification call with the client. They summarize that conversation. They then set the AE up on the, on the meeting or the field rep. And the first part of the agenda on the call with the AE is to review everything that was, was said in that quick review is this, maybe ask some clarification questions and then move forward throughout the process. They keep summarizing that. And then all that comes together and gets transitioned over to the, to the customer success team. So it's documented. It's in an email. It can be in your CRM. And it's a nice little timeline thing that doesn't take a ton of effort. Something you should be doing anyways. Reps should be taking notes and then consolidating those notes to figure out the key points. And it's a nice, simple thing that people can do to maintain expectations and also hold clients professionally accountable. You said that about the emphasis on priorities. I'm super intrigued. I get a lot of sales reps saying I cover a lot of different industries uh, with a lot of different verticals. So, so mm-hmm. how can I find the true priorities of the lead that I'm trying to convert? Yeah, that, that's another tough one because they don't all, they're not always honest with us, right? I mean, I for a long time, I've always been a priority-based seller because the way I look at it is if I can't tie my solutions to one or two of the top priorities that you have as a business, then the likelihood of me selling anything is not high, right? So for instance, one of my priorities, for instance, is recurring revenue. I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to create actual recurring revenue. And when somebody's selling to me, if they can figure that out, that's the only thing I care about. If you're trying to sell every all this other stuff to me, all these features and everything that's all this cool stuff, I could literally care less about it. But if you hone in on how you can help me drive recurring revenue faster, I will, I will change what I'm investing in and invest in you because that's really what matters. And, and as we move upstream to go get budget for stuff, for instance, a lot of us unfortunately get stuck below the power line to sell to people 
people, you know, who don't really have the decision-making authority. And so we work with them and we understand what their priorities are. But if we don't understand what, you know, when the CEO stands up at the beginning of the year right now and says, hey, this is what we're trying to accomplish this year. These are what our goals are. And this is what we're trying to do. And these are the top three or four things that we're going to be doing to get there. If I can't tie to that, then good luck, right? Because as we bubble this up top and go to somebody with authority and budget, they're going to they're gonna be able to tell whether this aligns. And if it doesn't, we're going to waste a lot of time here. To get to your question about how do we understand those, um, I think it, it, does, it goes back to the prep we do before the conversations we have. Unfortunately, for the majority of my career, the way I got to what your priorities were or tried to was I would just ask the st- simple, dumb question, you know, tell me about your priorities. And, you know, if I look back on that, I, I would get very vague answers, you know, oh, revenue. Oh, great. Well, let me show you how it can impact your revenue. And so now what I do is I try to walk in with a little bit of knowledge about that person, about their role, about their industry, about things that are going on with their business. So I can ask more educated questions to uncover what those true priorities are. So for instance, CIOs in the healthcare industry have different priorities than CIOs in the manufacturing industry. So if I'm going after a CIO in the manufacturing industry, I want to do a little Google search and say, hey, CIOs, manufacturing's priorities 2017 in Europe or US or whatever, try to quantify it down to a little bit more detail. There's a blog post, somebody's writing about it, right? So just read up on that, understand how to speak that language. And then instead of saying, what are your priorities? You can say, hey, you know what? We're speaking with other CIOs in the manufacturing industry, and they're telling us that walking into 2017, some of their top priorities are X, Y, and Z. Are those yours, right? Even if they're not, the fact that you showed that you have a little bit of knowledge of their their environment, you know, their situation tends to open up the conversation a lot more. Well, the additional can, effort not also just differentiate you between the plethora of other salesmen that are coming in with no knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's just true. And regardless, you know, I get kids asking me all the time for advice. Hey, John, could you, you know, I'm just getting into sales. Would love to talk to you about it. Get your insight. And I, I will absolutely have those conversations all the time. I love talking to young sales reps getting into the field. But those conversations last either five minutes or 30 minutes. And and the five minute ones last when they start off the conversation like, well, John, let me give you a little back. You know, so no, they say, John, tell me about your background and how you got to where you are in sales. Now, I understand that's the way we started here but that's for context for the group. But but when reps do that to me, I'm like, really? Well, here, here's a tip for you, kid. You know, go, there's a little product out there called LinkedIn where I put my entire work history on there so we can skip this little bullshit part of the conversation and get to the meat of it of what, you know, you can get value out of. And it's the same thing with executives. You ask a dumb question to an executive like, or you say something dumb like, tell me about your business, you're going to get a dumb answer. And so that's why the more research we can do, the more prep we can do before having these conversations, especially with higher level executives, the better information that we're going to get and the more they're going to open up to us. Now, it's very funny you say that. I always say with my interviews, there's no such thing as a bad answer, but only a bad question. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. But kind of honing in on that and kind of the importance then of doing your research and doing your homework. I recently had Alex McCaw, founder at Clearbit on the show, and he said personalization will be the future of sales. To what extent do you agree with this, particularly placed in context with the rise of AI and machine learning in into uh, elements of the sales process. What's your thought on this? Yeah, so I, I agree uh, for a period of time here, but I think personalization is, I, I think AI and, and all that's machine learning and everything is probably going to take over personalization as well because they actually, stuff I'm reading about AI is really scary. I mean, IBM Watson uh, is a client of mine and I got them as a client because they heard me. It was weird. You know, I posted a, last year, I 
posted uh, my predictions for 2016 and how artificial intelligence was going to really start to creep in, you know, and less literally I posted on LinkedIn and all I said in a full blog post was, have you been watching those IBM Watson commercials? That thing's getting scary smart. That's all I said, right? So it was one line in a, you know, final five or six paragraphs. Less than 30 seconds later, I had an in-mail in my inbox from a VP of sales over at Watson saying, hey, John, I'd like to talk to you about your sales training and whatever. And I was like, okay. And then, and then he sent me his link to his, his assistant. He's like, yeah, just schedule through my assistant. And so I took her email, which he gave me and I use Outlook. So I sent to, Hey, you know, just wanted to reach out, schedule a call. Kevin, here's, I even took a screenshot of his in-mail to show her that I wasn't some dirtbag sales rep. And I used those calendar sharing tools, time trade. And, and I was like, just click on that, pick a time that works for you. And, and she hits me back almost immediately with, sorry, John, I'm not in a position where I can click on links or attachments right now. Could you just suggest some times? And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, where are you that you can't click on a link or an attachment? Okay, whatever. And then, um, so I sent her a few, and long story short, it took me three emails back and forth with Sarah to realize she wasn't an actual human being. She was a fully automated, artificially intelligent assistant. And the only reason I figured it out, by the way, was because it was Watson. If it wasn't Watson, I would have just been like, hey, Kevin, how's Sarah? And so I get on the phone with Kevin. I was like, dude, I got to ask you a question here. Who's Sarah? He's like, she's my assistant. I said, is Sarah real? He goes, it depends on what your definition of real is. And and I was, I mean, it freaked me out. I thought it was super awesome, but, but also freaked me out. And so I actually think that personalization in the next five years, I, I think within the next five years, yes, it's going to be the sales reps key. But I think after five years, personalizations, I think a robot's going to be far more personalized than us because they know more about us. I mean, think about how much Facebook knows about you. Think about how much Google knows about you. They know infinitely more than an individual could ever know about you. And so I think, yes, there's a gap here where personalization, I think where really sales reps can excel in the future is the context. Um, you mentioned it in your question, which is, and I'm going to steal this from Gary. And I think I even talked about this on our last call, but I, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, he talked when I first started watching him the, the thing that got me really to pay attention was when he said that everybody talks about content is king content is king he said all right content if content is king that's fine but then context is God and to me that makes a lot of sense like for instance sales and marketing right marketing is content sales is context if you are not putting any context around the content then there's absolutely you we're no different than marketing and therefore there's I don't understand why we're getting paid to do what we do so I think that the future of sales are the sales reps that are going to be able to filter information, take information, put context around it so it is personalized to the to the people that we're reaching out to and can help them sift through all the crap. So think about you know one more point here. Think about all the content is out there, right? There, I mean, I knew as soon as LinkedIn bought Linda, I knew the content game was over in the sense that content was commoditized. For, so for my industry, sales training, the idea of coming up with some new sales methodology and some really cool technique that's going to change the world, to me, that's ridiculous because as soon as you come up with it now, somebody goes to one of, so for instance, say I come up with some awesome new sales theory, technique, whatever. As soon as I go and do a training on it, somebody in my class then goes and writes a blog about it and posts it out there and now it's, now what's the value in me training that, right? When you can get it on YouTube for, for nothing. So for me, my whole goal is the filter, right? And that's why I think brand building is so important. And again, I'm going to tap into that with your question, which is, I think the sales reps that have the brands that are the ones that are seen as those industry experts are the ones that are going to survive because where do we go to now figure out what is, what is the best thing for us? There's so much information out there. So who do we trust besides Google to, to get that information from? So I'm not creating content as much as I am um, filtering content 
and putting context around it so that my my clients, my the people who follow me, they, they understand and, and can sift through it and get a better uh, understanding of how to leverage it. Again, uh, following on from the university grad, I'm also thrilled to hear your thoughts on personal brand building there, obviously too. Uh, but I do want to dive into what I'll quick fire around. As you know, so 60 seconds faster, 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. So let's do subject lines to emails. How can we optimize them? Yeah, <laughs> that, I'm, a, I'm a bad one. To, I, well, I'm a good one to ask just in the sense that I don't know. So I do a Google search once a quarter on best subject lines and I just follow the trends because subject lines right now are changing so fast because what happens is sales comes up with a decent one and then marketing gets a hold of it, blasts it out to a million people and it doesn't work anymore. So what I do is I just simple go into Google, type in best subject lines um, and see what comes up. And inevitably there's a recent report from Yesware that came out um, probably about three, four months ago. So I got to do a new one coming up here soon. But there was a report that Yesware put out that was fantastic. It talked about how, you know, what words to use, how, you know, how length uh, has an impact, what words not to use that increase and decrease open rates. So I would encourage anybody listening to this to do a Google search on best subject lines and take a look at some of the reports. Some of the main ones are, you know, they're more marketing focused. Look for some of the more sales oriented ones, but you know, yes, where tout app, uh, HubSpot, there's a million of them out there. Go take a look at those. Discounting. Is it always bad? We see a lot at the end of the year. What's important to remember? (laughs) it's not always bad. Everybody has to feel like they get something out of a deal. Okay. Because you can't, I mean, I take a pretty hard line. I don't discount. I'll give money back guarantee if you don't like it, but I won't discount because I know the value of my products and services. And I also have a big fat pipeline. So I can, which I recommend everybody do keep prospecting. But, um, I think discounting is okay. If as, as somewhat of a last resort and also get something, making sure that you're getting something absolutely in return for what you're giving away. So if you're going to give away a discount, make sure you get obviously the signed contract if you can. If not, get a testimonial or a case study that'll help out later. And the other thing I'll mention on discounting is try to take the, for everybody listening to this podcast, you know, try to take the word discount out of your vocabulary and instead talk about creativity and flexibility. So for instance, you know, when people, I like getting price out of the way up front as as kind of a general, it's two philosophies on price. You either say it up front just to make sure that you're not wasting time or you build value all the way through the conversation and tell it to them later. The danger of that one, obviously, is you build value, but then they look at the price tag and say, holy crap, I thought it was way less than that. So I like to kind of say, hey, ballpark figures here, you're talking 50,000, 60,000, something like that. Is that in range? Okay. And now they might push back and say, whoa, you know, do you guys have any discounts or something like that? And instead of saying discount, you turn it into, well, look, we do have flexible, we, we can get creative and we do have some flexibility in our pricing and then put some context around it and say, look, um, that usually comes in the form of larger term con you know larger contracts or longer term contracts so now you've kind of set the stage so when the discount quote unquote conversation comes up at the end you say well look i told you earlier we can get creative with our pricing so what would you like to have a would you like to have a hundred licenses instead of those 75 or a three-year commit instead of a one-year commit because that's where i can get really creative mm-hmm. absolutely and then why should we all keep score yeah i wrote a blog post on this and it was just evident to me that we all keep score anyways so i think we should keep score i, I think we should be open about it. All of us have that imaginary line that is in our heads of once it goes past that point of being fair in our minds, um, we start to get ornery about it. So for instance, you know, the reason that sales reps get pretty pissy with clients is because we give and give and give and give and give. And then we expect a very big get in return, which is the, the signed contract, 
contract or whatever. And then the client keeps asking for more stuff. We've actually conditioned them to keep asking for things. And so they keep asking for discounts. They keep asking for more time. And inevitably there's that line in our, in our head where once it goes across that line, we just, we get mad, right? Because we don't think it's fair. And so, and fair is a very important word to, to use. And when it comes to negotiations, cause that's almost a four letter word. When you say fair, it immediately kicks into somebody from a psychological standpoint and they, they tend to back off a little bit. So there's a little nugget, but I think having a line and actually keeping score is important because then you can kind of gauge, okay, where are we in this deal? Are we relatively equal? Everybody knows that the best deals you've ever signed, the best relationships that any of us have are the equal relationships, the one, the equal deals, the equal partnerships, right? When one is lopsided one way or the other, it doesn't end up being a good relationship moving forward. So I think keeping score is actually important. And I think being open about it, at least to yourself, right? And writing down what you've given away, what you've gotten in return uh, is a good way of gauging that. So you can preempt that reaction when you start to get pissy about it. Brilliant 60 seconds after that, John. I'm sure we can do a third round just to keep you in the 60 second confines. <laughs> uh, but then moving away from the quick fire and final question, and it's one that I get a lot as a uh, host of Saster, and it's from sales reps who ask about the qualification stage, as we discussed earlier. And, you know, it's when the leads go dark. And I've heard you say before that there's two very different types of persistence that sales reps can enact on their leads. So talk to me, what are those two different types? There's two types. There's annoying persistence and professional persistence. Annoying persistence is the whole touching base, checking in, circling back, hey, you know, that type of crap and and not and saying the same damn thing over and over and over again. And this is on the on the prospecting side of the house to try to get that initial call, you know, sending five or six or seven emails all saying the same thing. Did you get my first email? Did you get my second email? You know, those type of things. That's annoying. But then there's also the annoying persistence after the deal is, you know, midway through, you've qualified it and the client goes dark on you. Okay, you know, what do you have to offer here? Professional persistence, I think, starts with, first of all, again, going back to our initial discussion here of setting clear and and concise and expectations, right? Making sure that from a client standpoint, they know from a communication what you're expecting and what you're going to commit to them. So for instance, small things that reps can do, again, tactical things that reps can walk away from this call with are stuff like saying, hey, you know what, um, what's the best way to communicate with you moving forward here to the client? You know, is it email, text, sell, WhatsApp, what is it? And then ask them, I've started to do this to say, hey, you know, as we go through this process together, uh, you know, I'll commit, if you need something from me, I'll get back to you within 24 hours, I promise you. What should I expect from you and and really putting it to the client being uh, there's a big difference between being direct and being rude being direct is to me about setting accurate expectations and holding people accountable being rude is pushing on people because you need something or trying to remind somebody what you said you know a month ago or something like that and so i think saying hey you know what should i expect i'll get back to you within 24 hours what should i expect from you and you can even preface it with look uh, the reason i ask this is because i don't want to be the annoying sales rep here okay i you know if you tell me a week, I'll wait a week. But I just want to make sure that we're following through on our next steps and I'm getting you what you need. And we have an open, transparent relationship here. Um, you can even go so far as to asking people, and I've done this before, to say, hey, as we go through this process together, if it's pretty clear that we're not a good fit, are you okay with telling me no? You know, it kind of sounds like a dumb question because of course, if we're not a good fit, then I'll tell you no. But I want to let you know, I asked that question because I want to make sure that you understand it is oh, it was 100% okay for you to tell me no. No is the second best answer in sales. Yes 
is the best, obviously, no is the second best. And then just to finish up the comment on professional persistence, you got to be adding value. When you, there's two things that you have to have in place. I don't care if it's prospecting, existing accounts, new accounts, whatever. The two things that need to be in play when you reach out to somebody are you got to be adding value in some way, shape, or form, and you got to have a reason. Because if you don't have a reason for your call, that's why you know touching base and checking in is so ridiculous. You're, there's If there's no reason, then there's no reason for me to talk to you. And the most valuable asset any of us have, any of us, I don't care who you are, the most valuable asset any of us have is time. So if you want my time, it has to be pretty damn clear that I'm going to get something out of this conversation or this interaction, whatever it is. So there's got to be some sort of value there. So professional persistence, making sure that as you're prospecting to people, you are adding value. There's a reason every single time. So when you're five or six or seven touches, whatever that might be for your cadence, there's something different, something new, something insightful, challenger sales stuff, whatever, do your homework. And then on the flip side, after you've qualified that person and you've set accurate expectations, when you're reaching out to them, make sure that there's a reason for you to reach out. And it isn't just to check in on where we are on the contract. There's that next step that you defined with the clients and you're going to hold them accountable for. And then maybe there's an article that you can share with them based on the conversation you had when they said, oh, I thought this was kind of interesting. And you could say, hey, yeah, I came across this article that really was relevant and it might not have anything to do with me, but here's something I thought you might find interesting here. You know, looking forward to our next conversation. John, as always, it's always a learning curve for me speaking to you. I always feel my sales knowledge instantly uh, leaps up. It's a shame I'm not in the sales game myself. Uh, but, <laughs> but seriously, I really appreciate you taking the time out to join me today. And it's such a pleasure to have you on the show again. No problem here. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. And I'd like to give a huge hand to John for giving up his time today to come on the show. Such a fantastic chat, as always, and I hope you got loads of notes from that. And if you love the show today with John and want to see more from Sasta, then join us at Sasta Annual 2017 for the once-in-a-lifetime chance to combine the wonderful world of SAS and sales with a mojito happy hour. What could be better? All you do is simply enter the promo code DRINKSWITHHARRY when you're purchasing your Sasta tickets, and you'll get 20% off and a mojito happy hour with me and Jason Lemkin. And if you want to follow me on Snapchat, you can on at hstebbings with two B's or you can follow the main man Mr Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK and if you do make the wise decision of coming to Sasta Annual then you'll see the incredible Algolia team in person Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning fast typo tolerant search into their SaaS product out of the box Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that really delights users this is is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is also a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SASTA podcast. And as always, we so appreciate the support and I cannot wait to bring you our next episode.